0: We're going to be back in Acts. Tonight we'll be in chapter number 14. Acts chapter number 14. We was in 13 this morning. 14 tonight. I'm always going to try my best to be honest with you as I'm going through this study just as you are. And <clears throat> when I was preparing this morning's message and when you looked at that dust settling and you looked at all those great things and that great power and that great gospel that was being preached... You know, it it was uh, in the eyes of this young preacher, it, it was just another gospel message that I was excited about, I was burdened with. Uh, when you're reading these scriptures, it, don't let the devil trick you into thinking, oh, they're just doing the same old thing. They're just doing the same old rut. There's so many tiny nuggets and there's so, many, so much truth and so much uh, to be dug into there. But as I prepared tonight's message, it was almost as if <clears throat> I was getting more and more excited with all that God was showing me, all that God led me to find. And tonight, uh, I will repeat what I said uh, a couple weeks ago in the bed of a pickup truck. It's been a couple months ago now. Buckle up. All right, because this is a good one. Um, this isn't a beat you over the head one. This is a lifting up one. So that's good. Somebody else say amen. About time. We've been beating us up for so long now. Um, after shaking that dust off, all right, after shaking that dust off, Paul and Barnabas this morning, they, uh, they got cast out from the coast of that city and they got uh, ran out of town, so you say. Uh, they did not want to hear what they had to say. They called in the big heavy hitters. They called in the rich and famous. They called the powerful and they ran Paul and Barnabas. Right out of that town. But what we would find is that their journey would just get more and more interesting. That that was just the beginning. That that work, that separate work that God called them to do to go into these cities was just getting started. And we'll look at our text tonight in Acts chapter number 14. Stand with me. We're going to begin reading in verse number 19. 19. Keep in mind what's just happened a chapter earlier. How they've been ran out of town. And we pick up reading in chapter number 14 and verse number 19. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again unto Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed throughout Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and thence sailed to Antioch. How many know exactly where they're at? All right. Oh, me too. All right, verse number verse number twenty seven. And when they were come, they had gathered to the church together, and they rehearsed all that God hath done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles, and there they abode long time. A long time with the disciples. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. God, I pray that as we dive into your scripture tonight, as we see these men, Paul and Barnabas, as we see this great missionary journey come to a close, as we see this first of many journeys that Paul would take, this first of many journeys that Barnabas would take, let us note the importance of the task that they did. Let us see the job that they took the time to set apart, to come back and do. Father, I pray tonight that you open our eyes, you open our ears, and you open our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, Hey, thank you and be seated. So business was just picking up for Paul and Barnabas. After they shook that dust off, that was only the beginning. I believe both of them knew that. I believe both of them understood what they had signed up for. Uh, but if it was me in Barnabas' shoes, I know what I would have said. I would have said, surely the next city can't be any worse than that one. And then they found out they were. Number one, they divided a city. Look at verse number one. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went... Together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. And now Jews are starting to understand and receive the gospel again. But the unbelieving Jews, here's that word again, stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs in the word of his grace by their hands. But the multitude of the city was, what was that word? Divided, Paul and Barnabas found the next step in their journey was to literally divide the city of Iconium. You see, they got ran out of that city that they just left, and now they get into Iconium, and now they're picking up a little traction, and they're getting a little bit more credibility. And as they begin to preach and the Holy Ghost begins to move, now you see an entire city become divided. You see an entire city say, well, we believe, and then the other half says, well, we don't believe. And what I want to just make mention of by introduction tonight is that the gospel will always demand a response. The gospel will always demand a response and it is simply to receive the gospel or to reject the gospel. Those are the only two responses to the gospel. There is no indifference to the gospel. There is no oh well to the gospel. There is no pretending you didn't hear it. There is no pretending you don't understand it. The gospel when it is preached in its simplicity when it is preached that it ought to be preached that the simple plan of salvation that Jesus died he was buried and he rose again and that his blood forgives us of our sins if we put our faith and trust in him through repentance is so simple the only response is simply to accept that or reject that so they divided the city there was half of the city that had accepted that truth and there was half of the city that rejected that truth and today as God calls us to do a work as God may send us back to the rescue mission in the days ahead or as he may send us back out onto the bus routes know that each and every time you present the gospel even to those little ears they are simply doing one of two things accepting it or rejecting it. Now, I do understand that there are ages of children that they simply don't understand it. But once they reach the age where they understand the Gospel, they will simply accept it or reject it. And it's important to understand that, especially in our Christian witness, especially when we're talking to non-believers, especially during this time where there's 4,892 exactly different opinions out there that they can pick from and different things that they can believe in and different things that they can cling to. It's important to understand that if they do not accept the Gospel... Then they are rejecting the gospel. Even if they say, Well, I believe in that part, but not this part, or if I believe in that part, or I go to church, but I don't believe in that, or I believe in that, but I don't go to church, or if I do that, and they try to explain away, they try to say, Pick it apart, they try to dissect it, they either are accepting it or rejecting it. So, Paul and Barnabas, in the beginning stages of their journey, they have found that they've defied, <coughs> divided a city. But next, they would direct their attention to a cripple. Look at verse number eight. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple. From his mother's womb heard Paul speak. Now Paul, who steadfastly beholding him, perceived that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped... And walk. Here's another lame man healed by one of the apostles. The apostle Paul, as he's preaching and as he's given this word, he sees this crippled man. He sees this man fix his eyes upon Paul. And as Paul looked and as Paul fixed his eyes back on that man, he saw something in his eyes that he had seen before. He saw something in his eyes that he understood very clearly. He saw something in his eyes that you and I would call faith. And that's what God needed. That's all God needed. And that's all Paul needed to see when he saw that that man listening to his message and that man hearing the gospel of Christ and hearing the Word of God and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and understanding that there was a God in heaven who had sent those preachers there just so that he could hear that message, just so that they could receive eternal life. When he saw the faith in that man's eyes, Paul knew that the work had already been done. Paul knew that the faith on that end was already there. God knew that the promise on God's end was already there. And he looked at that man and he said... Rise up and walk. So now we see this crippled man healed by Paul. And we see, or by God, but through Paul. And we see this miracle done. Now, that is going to shake things up a bit. Now they're no longer preaching, but now we've got people being healed. We've got people, you know, that were lame from their mother's womb, that were crippled from their mother's womb, had never walked a day in their life. Now they're leaping and walking and praising God. Now, there was half of the city, because we know it's divided. That was perfectly okay with this. They rejoiced in this. All right. And there was half of the city that didn't like it. But the problem would come not from the city that was against it, but from the city that was for it. Because look what had happened here. Look what took place in verse number eight, 11. Verse number 11. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, the gods are come down to us in likeness of men. Here they missed it, didn't they? They started reverting back to this uh, Greek belief or this Gentile belief. And they started reverting back to this <clears throat> um, religion of theirs. And, and you'll witness that a lot of times on the mention field. A lot of times when you're witnessing to a Buddhist or uh, to a pagan worshiper or somebody who worshiped the birds and the bees and the rocks and the trees and everything in between. When you're witnessing and you explain to them Jesus, you explain to them love, you explain to them the gospel, they're not in their heads. They're, they're 100% in agreement with you. You ask them, would you like to be saved? Yeah, absolutely. And you ask them, would you like to receive the gospel? Yes, absolutely. Would you like to repent of your sins and trust Jesus? And they say, yes, absolutely. And then they pray the prayer, and, and, you, and you're doing your best to try to understand what God's doing there. And they say, you know what? I'm saved. I'm a Christian now. And then they say, now we'll now come back over here to my house, and I want to show you all my gods. And as a missionary, you're... <sighs> right. That's where Paul and Barnabas are. How many of you have ever witnessed that? Maybe on the mission field, maybe witnessing to somebody who has one of these pagan religions. And they just simply added Jesus to all their little G gods. They simply just added Jesus to their shelf of all their little statues. They didn't necessarily disagree with you. They didn't necessarily fight or antagonize you. But they just thought you were giving them the name of another God that they could put on their shelf. All right. That happens more than we understand. That happens more than we realize. You have people all over this United States of America who worship their careers, who worship themselves, who worship their money, who worship their fame, who worship their friends, who worship their relationships, who worship every other little G God under the sun. And when you give to them Jesus, they nod their head, they agree, they say, and then they put Jesus on their shelf next to their car, next to their trophies, next to their bank account, and there's no repentance that had ever changed. And here's what happens to those people. They start worshiping the one who gave them the figurine to put on their shelf. They start worshiping man. What happened here in Paul and Barnabas's life? They called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priests of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands under the gates, which would have done sacrifice unto the people. Now wait a second. Paul and Barnabas were just preaching the gospel. But now here they found where these pagans and these lost folk that were hearing the gospel were not necessarily hearing it in the way they should have. They were simply taking it and they were adding their religion to it. Or rather, they were adding it to their religion. This was not not being received as Paul and Barnabas had directed it. You see, because the gospel must be received in repentance. It has to be turning from your wicked ways, dying to self, turning from your sin and placing your total faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here you have these people taking it and twisting it and saying, yeah, I believe in everything you're saying, but I'm going to take what you're telling me and just add it to what I already have. There's a church, several churches, on this street, maybe not on the street, but in this area, that do the exact same thing. And young people especially are flogging to them by the hundreds Because they look at those young people and they say, you don't have to repent. You don't have to change anything. Jesus wants to be your friend. Jesus wants to love you just the way you are. Just add him. Add him into your life. Keep everything else that's in your life, but just add him to it. And they say, okay, I understand. And how do I know that that's happening? Because they begin to worship the man who's telling them that. Because it's not God who's telling them that. It's not in their Scriptures that's telling them that. It's nowhere found in God's Holy Writ that's telling them that. It is one man with one idea that maybe initially his intentions were good, but they began to worship the men. Now, there's two responses that the preacher can have. Either he could soak it in and do what there's some on this very area doing. And they've got a congregation of thousands that worship them. And they know it, and they accept it, and they abuse it. Or you can do what Paul and Barnabas did. All right, what happened here? Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We also are of men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made the heaven and earth and the sea and all things that were therein. He ran into this cultish belief as they were preparing to have this ceremony, as they were preparing to celebrate and worship Paul and worship Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas got wind of it. They rent their clothes and they began running, screaming, hollering, saying, stop, stop. Don't you dare sacrifice that. Don't you dare sacrifice this. Don't you start doing these pagan rituals on our behalf. You are not supposed to be worshiping us. I'm sorry for the miscommunication, but there is one God, there is one name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved, and it ain't Paul it ain't Barnabas. It ain't A, B, C, or D. It's Jesus Christ. Worshiping men is one of the most dangerous things facing, not Anchor of Hope, I would say, but our church, the American church. You click the TV. you got men that are being worshipped on a daily basis. Turn on the radio stations. you got men that are being worshipped on a daily basis. And those men's intentions aren't necessarily wrong to begin with. But they begin to develop this cult following. And then it becomes, well, whatever he says, I'll do. And whatever the word of God says, that's just kind of over here to the side. That's what's just taking place. Paul and Barnabas said, no, that's not what's going to take place. Well, here we have these pagans, they take offense to it. Now they realize the truth of the gospel. Now they're being hit in the face with what Paul and Barnabas were trying to say from the beginning. They're saying, wait, you're saying our religion isn't right. And Paul and Barnabas went, "Mm mm-hmm. That's what we're saying. We're saying that Jesus Christ died so that you wouldn't have to put your faith and trust in rocks and birds and trees and rocks and sticks and mud and the moon and the sun and the stars. Jesus Christ died because all that hogwash is exactly that it is. Hogwash. It is not taking you anywhere, but to an early grave, it is not taking you anywhere in eternity. And as a matter of fact, people, all those things you're worshiping, all those little G-gods, all those idols you put on the shelf, all those dollar bills, all those cars, all those women, all those drugs, all those addictions, they're going to take you to a place called the Lake of fire and now they're seeing it wait a second you mean we got to repent of everything we believe and believe what you're saying not what I'm saying what he's saying now that's the gospel that cuts that's the gospel that took place so things escalated quite quickly at that point they went from being worshipped one hour to what happened next in verse number 19 and there came certain Jews Here's the Jews seizing their opportunity. From Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people. Yeah, they told you you were wrong. They told you you can't sacrifice your cows. They told you you can't sacrifice and have your bonfire and go hoop and holler and dance around and worship Mercury and worship Jupiter and worship all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, we, that's what they're saying. We need to kill them. We need to get them out of here. So the people are saying, all right, we already got rocks laying everywhere. Let's take care of business. Verse number 19, and Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people having stoned Paul, Drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. They threw him out of the city. Do you, know, do you guys understand? Everybody clear? Young people, you clear in understanding. Supposing he had been dead, that means they thought he was dead. Okay? When they threw out of Paul out of that city, they thought they killed him. How bad would you have to have been stoned for the people to stop throwing rocks? They would have had to have thought, he's already dead. Don't throw another rock. He's already dead. Don't throw another stone. We're wasting our energy at this point. He dead. He dead. So they drag Paul's body out. They drag him outside of the city. And verse number 20, How be it as the disciples stood round about him? No doubt. If the people that stoned him thought he was dead, then as the disciples got to looking at him, they, they probably thought he was dead too. And they're standing around about him. No doubt there's some crying going on. No doubt there's some questioning going on. No doubt there's some wonder going on. And God, how would you let this happen? All he's trying to do is serve you. God, how, how, why us? Why did they have to throw rocks at him? Why Paul? Why didn't you take me? What, what's going on? Paul stood up. He wasn't dead, was he? Paul stood up. You know what he must have said here? Let's go back into the city. You know how I know he must have said that? Because he went back into the city. Nobody else would have had grounds to say, Paul, get up, let's go back into the city. Nobody else could have said that. Paul would have had to make that call. But as he went back into the city, notice what he did. He was dead, supposedly. But tonight the message is from dead to discipleship. Because when he went back into the city, he didn't go back in there this time to preach the gospel. And to try to, nope. What did he do? The reason he drug himself off the ground. The reason he said, let's go back into the city. The reason after being almost killed. Is because he had a very important job to do. He had a job to do and he would set the example for generations to come. That this job was more important than going to the next city. This job was more important than laying there in the dirt and feeling sorry for himself. This job was more important than all the disciples just kind of escorting them back to Antioch or back to Jerusalem and saying, we'll take care of you. Just take a couple years off till you heal and then maybe you come back and preach with us again. No, this job was so important. Right there and right then Paul stood up to go back to do what? Look at verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. What do they do? Confirming the souls of the Disciples. From dead to discipleship. Discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. I would submit that discipleship was probably the most important thing on Paul's mind. We just led them to Christ and we left them back there where they're trying to get them to worship cows and birds and bees and birds. We just led them to Christ. And we left them back there where the Pharisees are saying and trying to take their money. We just led them to Christ, and they're out there in that dark world, and nobody's there to teach them. Nobody's there to de- we just led them to Christ. It is our responsibility to go back to those places in which we preach, to go back to those converts, to go back to those souls and confirm them, to make sure that they are being taught, to make sure that they are being disciples. So, what is discipleship number one? Confirming. It says very clearly in verse 21. When they, 22, confirming the souls of the disciples. In verse 22a, confirming. This is a big theological debate in the Catholic Church that they dunk your head in some water when you're a baby, and then older, they've got to confirm you to make sure that water's stuck or something. May have that wrong, Mr. Pope, I'm sorry, but it's hogwash. The confirming Paul was doing here was simply going to find the sheep that he had led to the cross. Number one, to confirm them, he had to be able to find them. Let that sink in for just a second. After he had been through those towns and been through those cities preaching the gospel, when he came back to disciple them, to confirm them, he had to be able to find them. There were three preachers eating breakfast one morning. They all had the same problem. They all three had squirrels in their attic. Young preacher says, "I've got all these squirrels, and I got my B, my son's BB gun, and I shot three or four of them, and I thought I had the problem solved. But a couple of weeks later, a couple of weeks later, they was back in my attic." A slightly older preacher speaks up and he says, "Son, you ain't been in ministry very long, but I didn't. Well, I wasn't so successful either. You see, I set a trap out, and I caught them squirrels. I took them way tens of miles away from the house, let them go in the woods. So you don't you don't harm God's preachers, son. That's why it didn't work, but." I got back, there's still a couple in my attic. And then they bred and right back to the same problem. That old preacher's just sitting over there laughing, cackling, laughing, He hawing "So said, what's so funny, preacher? He said, you boys ain't been in the ministry near long enough. I said, what are you talking about, preacher? Well, I went and I caught all my squirrels. I took them down the creek. And I baptized every single one of them. I ain't seen them since. <laughs> Yes, the rest of you will get it here a second. Before Paul could confirm, before Paul could come back and say, hey, how's it going? How you doing? How have things been? He had to find them. Only God knows if a person receives Christ. But I question those professions that are followed by complete and total absence. They're not there. They're not searching. They may not know what to wear. They may not know where to go. That's okay. But Paul had to be able to find them. They were there. Number two, they had to be able to receive him. Hey, brother so-and-so, it has been a while. Where are you going? Hey, come back. Hey. Oh, well. Now, when Paul tried to confirm, when he had to come back and confirm him and disciple him, not only did he have to be able to find him, but they had to be able to receive him. They would have had to say, Paul, welcome back. I needed to see you today. Some of us. Kids, kids, get in the back. We pretend like we're not home. The preacher's here. But mom, the car's outside. Get in the back. Mom, Johnny hit the alarm on the keys. We're not here. They had to receive him to be discipled. And bless God, no one's ever took the time to disciple me. Well, they invited you to come to Sunday school. but No one's ever took the time to teach me. Well, they ask you to come carry the ladder to come clean some gutters out for a widow. but Ooh. Somebody's going to get me on that one. Discipleship meant they had to be able to receive Paul. He was willing. Think of all the things Paul would later write and teach. But there was probably some that said, I, I'm good, Paul. That, I, that was just something I did emotionally. I shouldn't have done that. And there was never any real repentance to begin with. Number three, he had to be able to find them. They had to be able to receive them. But they hadn't backed up. They hadn't ran away. They hadn't quit. They hadn't quit. They hadn't quit. They hadn't quit. They may not have been able to quote the whole Old Testament in the couple of months since Paul had been gone. They may not have been able to uh, recite their memory verses. They may not have been able to preach a message. They may not have been able to pray very well. They may not have been able to do this or do that. And that's okay, but they didn't quit. Before you can disciple somebody, they can't be a quitter. Because if they'll quit on God, they'll quit on you. If they'll quit on God, they'll quit on you. And as we extend our hands, and our, we should expect them to quit on us. They're human. We're human. They're going to fail us. The people we tried to disciple, they're going to fail us. We're going to fail them. But neither one of us have an excuse to quit on Him. Amen. That's confirming. Number two, holy cow, we got nine minutes. Buckle up. Number two, exhorting. Verse 22b. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. Number one, exhorting means you have to acknowledge their success. No doubt, Paul came back and said, "You're having a Bible study in your house. Praise the Lord! That's amazing. Praise the Lord for your faithfulness. Oh, oh, you- you're-, you're praying every day. Praise the Lord for that. Oh, you you read some of my letters I've sent back to the churches. Praise the Lord! I'm glad you're reading them. Oh, pra- praise the Lord for the things you've surrendered to do for God. Never underestimate the power of thank you. Thank you." It is very discouraging when you admire somebody, when you look up to somebody, when you feel like they are discipling you and you extend your greatest effort out to them and there's no thank you. And I'm not saying that's why you do it, but it definitely helps. Acknowledging, comforting, reminding them that they're not alone. Paul came back, remember me? I was the one that preached that first man. I was the one that that held you by the hand. I was the one that helped you fill out the decision card. I was there that night you got saved. I shouted amen from the back row. You remember me? I just want you to remember that Satan may try to tell you that you're alone. Satan might try to tell you the only person that got saved that night. Bless God, you're not. Bless God, you're not alone. Bless God, you are part of the family of God. That there's an entire group of believers all over this world that love you and that pray for you and that lift you up. You are not alone. What are you talking about? Discipleship. Comforting. Comforting, acknowledging, and encouraging. Cheer them on. Cheer them on. Why? Why should we cheer each other on? God believes in them. God saved them for a purpose, right? God called them to a mission, whether it's cutting grass or cutting down the jungle. Whatever it is. God saved them for a mission. God called them to a purpose. If God believes in them, why can't you? Why can't we cheer them on? Why can't we be their biggest cheerleader? I'm not talking about worshiping them. I'm talking about encouraging them. You know what the Lord spent the latter part of His ministry doing? Pouring into them disciples. Telling them all the great things that they were going to be able to do through Him. Telling them all the preaching that they were going to do. Telling them all the prayers that they were going to pray. Telling them all the miracles that they were going to see. Encouraging them saying, I'm about to leave. I'm about to go prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to come back. But when I come back, y'all better not have been sitting around smoking cigarettes. Y'all better have been out there preaching. Y'all been out there with power. Y'all been out there using the gift that I'm going to give you. Encouraging them. That's exhorting. Number three, warning. Verse 22. Again, And that we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. I'll say this on this point, and we'll move on. Warning in discipleship is not the same thing as discouraging. You hear me? Warning somebody about tribulations and trials and temptations is not the same thing about as discouraging. It is right and it is biblical to look at that young saved person, to look at that older saved person, to look at that person that you're trying to pour into, you're co-laboring alongside with, and say, look, it's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows. It's not going to be a smooth road. It's not going to be completely all hunky-dory all the time. But God is in control. A lot of times we think we're helping somebody by warning them, but we leave out the best part that God's got this. We say, bless God, it's going to be rough. Bless God, my aunt had that and it was just terrible. Bless God, my uncle, he went through the same thing and oh, it's just so terrible. But we leave out the part about the great physician. We leave out the part about the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We leave out the part that we've read the end of the book and that we're on the winning side and that Jesus Christ is going to reign supreme forever and ever and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We leave that out! Warning is not the same thing as discouraging. Don't be a discouraging Christian. Why are you trying to do that? Nobody wants to do that. You don't know that? Somebody may be dreaming about having a yard sale. Nobody wants to get in those rooms and organize all that mess. Somebody may literally be having dreams about it. Excited about it. Don't be a discouraging Christian. I can just preach on that one because that one's in my house. Six o'clock in the morning, honey, I bet if I put the picture frames on the table and put all the picture frames with no pictures in it in separate boxes, that we'll sell more of them. Your kid, nope. <laughs> honey, we got to go over to the gym. I need your help. We got to reorganize the shoe table. It's eight o'clock at night on a Friday night. What do you want? to We got to reorganize the shoe table. Don't be a dream killer. Don't look at those people that do things differently than you and kill their dreams. God can use them. Confirming, exhorting, warning. Lastly, educating. Look at verse 23. And when they had ordained elders in every church and had prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord. Educating, educating, teaching. This is what the Bible says about this. This is what the Bible says about that. There has never been a conversation that I've had with one of the men back there on that bench. There has never been a conversation where he shares his opinion and I share his opinion and I go to get up from the table and he says, wait a second. This is what the Bible says about it. Wait a second. Before you, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture that deals specifically with this. Why? You know what that is? That's educating. Not in His wisdom, but in His wisdom. Educating and discipleship. We overcomplicate it, but it's educating them babies. It's teaching them babies. Hey, when you're in church, you sit down. If you want to color, color. If you want to take a nap, take a nap. But you're going to sit in the sanctuary. You're going to come to church. When they get a little bit older, hey, you're going to go to children's church and you're going to learn something today. Yeah, you might eat a pack of gummy bears and some animal crackers, but hey, you need to be able to tell me what you learned today. And then them teenagers. Bless God, them teenagers. You don't even own your own underwear and you think you're the President of the United States. You think you can make all the calls in the world and you still live in Mama's house. But you know what? Those things we look down our nose at as little problems that they just need to get over, that's their whole world. That's the biggest thing on their mind: that dance, that prom, that ball game. That's their whole world. What if they had a? What if they had somebody to say, "That ain't the whole world. That's the whole world." Amen. Discipling them middle age, and then lastly, that elder generation that had the privilege of coming up through all that going out there and learning some lessons out there, going in here and learning some lessons in here and have the opportunity to be one of those elders that Paul said, Brother so-and-so, I'm leaving. I got some more cities to go preach in, but you keep teaching. Notice what he did. He didn't ordain them preachers. God was ordaining the preachers. God was handling the preaching. God was handling the spread of the gospel. Paul took the time and said, Hey, I just need you to teach these folks. I just need you. I'm going to send a letter to you. It's going to be called Ephesians. It's going to be called Galatians. It's going to be a letter from me. And you're going to get it. And I need you to be prayed up. And I need you to be close with God. Because when you get this letter, I need you to share it with them. I need you to teach those young men. I need you to teach those young ladies. When I write those epistles of Galatians and Ephesians, when I write those letters to Timothy, those aren't just for Timothy. When I write that letter for Titus, it's not just for Titus. When I write these letters and I'm in prison and I'm going to be getting word from God, when I'm going to be getting manna from heaven, I need you to share it with God's people. Discipleship. We had a man go from dead to discipleship. A lot of us profess to be alive and we don't do discipleship. So Anchor of Hope, as we close, just ask yourself this question. Don't point the finger, don't look at the left, look at the right. Who is somebody in your head that has discipled you? They may be in this church, they may not have ever set foot in this church and that's okay. Who is somebody that discipled you, who took their time by their choice, their time and their choice to just show you something about the Lord? You ought to call that person tonight and just say, thank you. I promise you it will mean the world to them. It may be the one phone call they need to carry on and disciple more. They may be right there on the edge of quitting, but that one phone call could change their path. Who is one person who took their time to disciple you? Now ask yourself the harder one. Who is one person that you are actively taking your time pouring yourself into? Doesn't matter how old they are. They could be older than you. Who is one person that you are taking your time and saying, I'm teaching so-and-so how to do this God's way, how to do that God's way, how to be patient God's way, Anchor of hope, who is your disciple? You think about that. And if you don't have one, here's how this works. God, send me one. They'll be there. He'll turn that light bulb on. You'll go, oh, they've been here the whole time. Thank you, Lord. We overcomplicate it way too much. They're right there. They're waiting on you. And then somebody else is waiting on them. And then somebody else is waiting on them. Discipleship. Father, thank you so much for your church. God, I hope that this message has reached the ears of your people to simply thank those who've taken their time to disciple them. Thank those who've taken their time to put their lives on pause and their growth on pause and that their mission's on pause and just simply take the stop and hit the pause button and to come back to those places that they had been before and explain the things of God. To encourage, to exhort, to warn. God, to comfort, to confirm. God, I pray tonight that if there's one in this room that does not have a disciple, God, I pray that you help them to find one. God, I help them to find one and help that disciple know they're being discipled. Don't let them just be a name on a sheet, a check mark in a box. Help them to be a relationship that's formed between the brethren and the sisters. Father, I pray that You use this service and be with our meeting to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.